Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Before we get started, let's talk about Pushnik. Pushnik is a subscription program available exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Members will get access to bonus content like extended versions of our Beastie Boys and Brian Eno episodes. You'll also get ad-free listening to many of your favorite podcasts like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, The Happiness Lab, and ours, Broken Record. You can try it for free for seven days. Sign up for Pushnik and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Rick Nielsen is best known as Cheap Trick's lead guitarist and main songwriter. The band that helped popularize power pop in the late 70s, with songs like Surrender and I Want You to Want Me. Precursors to the pop punk explosion in the 90s, with bands like Green Day and Blink-182. In June, Cheap Trick released their 20th studio album, In Another World. It's chock full of Rick Nielsen's monster riffs that recall their glory days in the 1970s. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlum talks to Rick Nielsen about Cheap Trick's origin story, while Nielsen fiddles around on electric guitar and samples riffs from the new album. Nielsen also talks about how he was hired to bring a hard rock sound to John Lennon's final album with Yoko, Double Fantasy and what it was like working with the Beatles' legendary producer, George Martin. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. 
Here's Bruce Hadlam with Cheap Tricks, Rick Nielsen. We're going to talk about In Another World, which is your new album. It sounds like you guys were having fun making this album. Well, I think we were, and I think we do. Just sounds really kind of joyful and fun. That's kind of the idea. I mean, we, we make records for, for ourselves. I mean, we, we don't have a, a, a manager that hangs over us or a producer that's, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, we got this going. And the record label of BMG has been fabulous. I mean, <laughs> they're so fabulous that, uh, that they don't bother us. And it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect record label. It you is. It's the first one we've ever had like that. It's like, it's pretty cool. So what's writing like? Are you on a bus? Are you in a hotel and you just pick up your guitar? It's kind of how we always did it. I mean, I used to write 100% of the stuff or 90%. We, we just got, uh, somebody's got an idea. Hey, that sounds, if it sounds interesting, then we'll, we'll go for it. Now, you just picked up a guitar, which is not a surprise because you own, how many guitars now do you own? About 500. Well, I've owned about 2,000 instruments. But I've been around for a long time. And I've, tra- I've traded stuff. I've had stuff. I broke stuff. I gave stuff away. I mean, I've got a guitar, a real guitar in almost every hard rock around the world. Yeah. <laughs> so while you've got the guitar in your hand, Tell me about writing the first single, which is Summer Looks Good on You. I, I think we had the title first. Seemed like a good idea. Let's, you know, this could be a summer song, you know. So. Here comes the summer. Yeah, that's, that's that one. That's it, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had two that came out about the same time that we were doing... You know, it's like how we wrote the parts. We did the the D part. The B flat sounds kind of weird in there, but yeah, uh, that was some stuff that we like when we did uh, Taxman. And uh, stiff competition, same thing. You look high. I mean, I just kind of like that. That sound, yeah. Thing, and and it, it sounds different every time. We use chords that a lot of people don't use. You know, it's like <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, well, and this, the song is in E, right? Isn't it? Uh, well, the chorus is in D. And the verse is in A. Yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> Listening to the, and I hadn't really thought of it before, it sounds a lot like Peter Townsend to me. We hit the chords equally hard. <laughs> was he an influence on you? Oh, yeah. I mean, love, who was the best live band ever? I mean, you know, I played with them, opened for them when, uh, when Keith Moon was still around. And what was that like? Oh, it was great. You know, it's like because we'd read about them and actually we knew their songs. We, we opened for them at uh, Majestic Hills in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in 1968. Two weeks after we'd opened for... Uh, Frank Zapp and the Mother's Invention. Wow. Yeah. You know, you were the band when you came out that everybody liked. The heavy metal guys liked you. The new wave guys liked you. What's not to like? Well, what's not to <laughs> like? But you just appealed to such a wide group of, like, everybody could agree on Cheap Trick, even though if they disagreed about everything else. It seems like that. I mean, I heard that from a lot of people. I mean... You know, like the Ramones liked Cheap Trick, you know. And Joey did uh, a number of our songs. He did Southern Girls. He came to see us. And he's like, you know, he's from New York. We're from the Chicago area. We never, you know, really saw them unless we went to see them. We didn't know them personally. So it was like when we start meeting these guys, it was kind of fun. And uh, the New York Dolls, they came to see us play. (laughs) I want to go way back. Okay. Because you grew up in a musical family. Yes, I did. Tell me about that. My father was an opera singer, and he was also a religious kind of singer. He sang with Billy Graham. Uh, He had a radio show in Chicago on WMBI, which is the Moody Bible Institute, where where both my grandfathers graduated from. They were both ministers. So I was around music. My dad was a choir director in World War II. He He was a captain. And he was served at the Aleutian Islands and in Roswell, New Mexico. But he was always around music. And uh, my dad was choir director at a church in Rockford. But we went to Chicago, to the Baptist churches. I, at those times, I'd, here's a, a white guy with a black woman. It's like, And they're singing this great music. And everybody's having fun. I said, this is it. Then I go back to you know, the, the other stuff, and it's like, uh, put you to sleep music for me. It's like, holy cow, what what I do wrong, God? You know, it's like, and when my father also did uh, opera, he did uh, Barbara Seville, which I walked on stage when I was three years old, supposedly. And I walked out on stage when they're doing Barbara Seville and uh, people started to laugh and clap. And I was like, this is what I, I like this. So I like it when people laugh and clap. And it wasn't a direct route to all this stuff. But so I was around these kind of wacky artists. So I worked in my dad's music store where I goofed off mostly. So I'd see everybody. You know, uh, Sam Kinison actually rented a PA when he was uh, was an evangelist. He and his brother. Oh, amazing! Was there a moment when sort of pop music came on the scene or rock music? I started out playing drums. Let there be drums. I think was one of them. It was Sandy Nelson, and I like Gene Krupa. I like that stuff. And plus. Music on, on drums is uh, sort of like mathematics, and I was always good at math. You know, like instead of one, two, three, four, dr- drums, one E and a, two E and a, three. I could write out music like that, although I couldn't really read it. I knew how to write it out for me, and that really helped me later in songwriting. And then as it progressed, I started playing in bands as a drummer, and the guitar players were always, even when we do a Rolling Stones song or something, 
I didn't know how to play guitar, but I knew they were playing the wrong note. So I'd get off the drums and I'd figure out what the part was. And after, after too much of that, I just decided to give up the drums and find some other kid that could count to four the <laughs> drums. And I just taught myself how to play guitar. Did you just get a guitar from your dad's shop? I actually got a guitar from my mother. It was, it was a Goya, a Swedish brand, nylon string guitar. That was my first one. I still have it. Uh, it doesn't sound any good, and it's kind of smashed up and broken, but that's that's how I kind of learned. It was The neck was wider and stuff, so I actually learned how to play a, a more difficult instrument instead of this easy stuff that I got in here. You're the sort of guitar hero to people. But you're not the kind of guy that stays up on stage and plays like 10-minute solos. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> That's why years ago I used, to, I used to stack my guitars one on top of another. I'm, you know, I'm a songwriter and an entertainer. I'm not really a, a virtuoso at, at all. If you, My solos are sh- shortened to the point. The song is more important than me. Right. And do you have all your solo parts and all your licks worked out before you go on stage? Well, if I know the songs... You know, sort of. Yeah, like you're not yeah. like Angus Young or someone who just gets up there and plays and plays. Well, he plays a lot of uh, stuff that's, you know, that he's worked out, you know, stuff that's on the yeah. record. So that, you know, I'll change it if I, if it's that bad. But it's like, usually what I do is like, I'll play something that's realistic according to me. And it's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like on the, on this new record, it's like, I don't sound like I'm in this old guy. I sound like this. sometimes I've, that I would do a solo that's more like uh, the MC5 or Neil Young. He, he he plays one note. That's good enough. Yeah, he plays it well. Yeah. When you started playing electric guitar and you were in bands, who were the guitarists who influenced you to get that very particular sound? Well... My favorite, uh, and I, I went to see him. I was, I think, the the first show of uh, I'm not sure what year, '64, uh, the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck, right from the start, and I thought he was great then. I think he's great now. He's still my kind of my hero. And, and I sold him a guitar in 1968, uh, the second Les Paul he ever owned. Really? Yeah, I went and saw him in Chicago at uh, the Connecticut Playground. What was it about his playing you liked so much? You know, back then it was like the guitar players that you kind of knew about was uh, Scotty Moore and Chet Atkins. But they had, they played with round, wound strings. And he was like, it just didn't sound right. Jeff Beck sounded like, how does you get that sound? It's like, I was, back then there were like, there was no guitar magazine kind of things. I read in a Hit Parader, and it was like, how did Jeff Beck get that? He says, well, I just, you know, punched out the speaker, you know, made it kind of raspy and whatever. Of course, so I, the first thing I did was go punch holes in my speakers, and that, and, and that wasn't it. It's, it's him. <laughs> yeah. You need Jeff Beck to punch a hole in your speaker. Not anybody can do it. Yeah, you got to have the right punch. Yeah. We'll be right back with more from Rick Nielsen after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Rick Nielsen. You were playing in bands. The other guys in Cheap Trick were playing in bands. How did you finally all get together? So I met Tom in high school, and I knew Bunny. Bunny was in in an opposing band. He was in the Pagans, and I was in the Grim Reapers. And I was like, okay, so I thought they were wimpy, and he thought I was a Balahoonian. What does that mean? They carry knives like a hood. Oh, okay. I I was a troublemaker. He had a, a single out, Good Day Sunshine with the Beatles. Good Day Sunshine. You imagine that's like, that's even wimpier than, the, than when I'm 64. So then when did you meet Robin? 
Robin, uh, Bunny knew him because Robin hit, you know, he's like five years younger. So I never knew him. But uh, we had heard that there's this singer, it was, it was called B.B. Kent or something. He was in a duo. Uh, he was doing Bee Gees songs and Neil Young and Beatles. We heard that this guy was really good. So I went up there with, with my manager at the time. And it's like, because we're looking for a singer. And, you know, he picked the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Robin, I, you know, I could tell he had, he'd been in choir and, and stuff growing up. And so he was a real singer, legit. Later, he uh, actually took some uh, singing lessons from my father. Was that right? Yeah. Now, you guys, when you were playing, just because where you were near Chicago, you'd go to Wisconsin, you went, you went, you must have spent a lot of time in vans. Oh, yeah. Did it like crazy. Yeah. I read somewhere that you preferred playing suburban places because the crowds were bigger. Like if you went into Chicago, some of the clubs just weren't, they weren't big enough. They weren't big enough. And it's like, uh, for the most part, they liked their horn bands. And you know, it's like the, and going and play original stuff was not easy, you know, because you get the jobs, you know, what, what uh, Rolling Stones songs do, what do you do from the top 40? We'd always say, well, you know, we got a whole bunch of stuff. And we, we never did. So we did get fired a couple of places because we didn't do what they wanted. Did playing like bigger halls out in the suburbs, that, did that affect your sound? Did that help shape what, how, you, how you came out? You know, being a three-piece, you got to do what you do. I mean, when, like that chord I played to that A chord, mm-hmm. if you let it ring out, there's certain ways to play it. It's like I didn't go chick, 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 you know, like some, some guitar parts and stuff. I never played like that. It's like I played uh, to fill the sound out. And so mm-hmm. we'd go to those places and we always had our, built our own PA. So we'd go to these places like, so we, we knew what we wanted. We used to use a TX3340 as the slap echo on the voice to sound uh, like John Lennon. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a reel to reel. We had to, you know, it was running all the time. But it's like, if I go back and listen to some of the tapes we did, we were playing in clubs and we sounded good. Yeah. And we had good amps. In 1968, when I bought my Mellotron at Orange Music, I bought it used. I also bought the very first Orange Amp, which I still have today. I just liked it. And I was like, you know, I have to be smart enough or lucky enough to surround myself with good equipment. Yeah. So when did you get signed to do the first Cheap Trick album? Uh, 76. Jack Douglas came to see us. And we got turned down by a bunch of people sending tapes out or whatever. And, and uh, Jack Douglas had heard our stuff and liked it, but wanted to see us. So he came to Waukesha, Wisconsin, because his, his in-laws uh, lived there. The Sunset Bowl, bowling alley, that had bands on the weekend or whatever. And we'd played there a number of times. And Jack came that night and the place was packed and, was, and everybody's drunk. And it's like, and then we came up and played and he immediately liked us. I don't know who he talked to, Tom Worman or somebody at the record company and says, you got to sign these guys. I said, I'll do them. You know, and here's Jack who's done Aerosmith records. So, I mean, it's like his name meant a bunch. <laughs> so we, we actually went in not long after that and I uh, went to New York and went to the record plant and uh, did uh, 20, 20 some songs in eight days or something like that. By that point, had you guys kind of figured out 
your look. I think it was Jeff Tweedy who had a great line about like how you guys perfected the two good looking guys, two weird looking guys thing for a band. I never wanted to be anybody else. I don't know that I wanted to be me, but I, I was always a class clown. I was always the, you know, the wise guy. And so, you know, I didn't look like a rock star, you know, like a, a lot of bands back then, they were, you know, they wore their mother's makeup and used their mother's hairspray. And it's like, that, that wasn't me. It was like, so I kind of perfected it because like, you know, I, I had fun being the goof off, you know, I, I'd play these guitar solos or whatever. And it's like, and you people look at me, it's like, that's that guy. You know, he doesn't look like he has a nickel in his pocket. And, mm-hmm. you know. Your first album, I don't think sold, but your second album had, did it have I Want You To Want Me? I think it did. Yeah, that was in color. And we did that. That came out on 70, in 77 also between the first album coming out and that. And it, uh, that came out and it was the the Rolling Stone issue that where Elvis had died. He's on the cover and our reviews on the inside. Mm-hmm. And we got, I think we got pretty good reviews and that one sold a little bit more, but that, but in Japan we had a, a number one song with clock strikes 10, which would never got any airplay in the airplace. And so it must've been strange though, cause you were a struggling band here. You put out some albums. You hadn't had a lot of success. But then you went to Japan, you did the live album, but you were like the Beatles in Japan. That's what it seemed like, didn't it? It was frightening, but it was like, they were the coolest people I'd ever met, you know, or or never met. You know, it's like, these guys like us. (laughs) There was so much screaming at the concerts. I know, it was was fantastic. And then was it strange to come back to the States where you're, oh yeah, you were big in Japan, (laughs) you weren't so big here yet. Yeah, well, I was like, man... You got a taste of that. Now that's yeah. cool. <laughs> you know, it's like we can play these arenas and do do okay. You know, because we were slaying them over there. I was like, yeah, you know, but they liked us. I mean, we were we were a good we're a good band. I mean, we're not great or whatever, but but you are you're a very distinctive band can, because you've written most of the songs. Can yeah. you tell me what is 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 there some secret sauce to a cheap trick song? What is it that makes your songs distinctive that people like about them? I think we're diverse, which I think is probably, you know, it's like somebody might like this one. And then it's like, oh, but there's other stuff you can listen to. It's not like one song and then they're, they're 95, you know, 90% more, but they're just not as good as that one. And, you know, different people like different stuff. I mean, Clocks Rex 10, it's like, that's a hit. It's like here, if you'd play it, nobody knew it. And one of the things that we had done on our early records, it's like I wrote Hello There. As a for a sound check, hello there, lady. You know, it starts out drums, boom, boom, boom. Okay, now that's in. Okay, now the bass, boom, 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 boom. And here's the guitar. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. It was a sound check to, for doing these big shows we were doing. Because if you think about it, what intros, what's the first song we should play in our set with Queen or who any whoever? You got to get their attention. Let's let's play this one that's real moody and in the middle part. You know, it's like don't overthink it. So that's how those songs came about. We'll be right back with more from Rick Nielsen after a quick break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. 
You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlund's conversation with Rick Nielsen. You've had a long relationship with the Beatles. Now, I'm not quite sure. I know George Martin produced your album in 1980, and that's also when you were working with John Lennon. Which came first? 
we worked with George in Air Studios in Montserrat, and that was, was the beginning of 1980. And then, mm-hmm. and then we went to England to finish it. And then it was in August of, of 80, August 12th, that I went and worked with John Lennon. So tell me, what was it like to, to work with George Martin? Well, George was great. He was like the, the smartest musician, producer, overall arranger, whatever. I mean, he was the, he liked us too. I mean, that was, that was, we were kind of shocked at that. You know, and we got we got him to come to Madison. He and Jeff Emmerich come to Madison in the middle of winter for pre-production. You can imagine they get, hey, George Martin, you want to go to Madison, Wisconsin, with three foot of snow and wear your galoshes now. And he came to see us. And he liked the band enough and the songs enough and us enough that he said yes. And so, hey, we're going to go to Montserrat in the British West Indies, my new studio, Air Studios. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so he packed up and went down there and did the tracks there and then finished it. Then we flew to New York and took the Concord over to London. And we took the Concord over and then we took it back when we were done. We went to stay in London and finished the record there. But I'm fascinated just because there's so many stories about George Martin with the Beatles. What was he like in the studio? Oh, it was great. He was like very professional and, uh, to experiment on stuff. We did uh, Stop This Game was one of them. And he, uh, the intro... So I did that, but we did it with the orchestra. But the very beginning of, of the song is like, well, I can't stop the music. I can stop it. He, we did recorded a, an E note, and then he went to the second track on a piano and recorded that, and we left the attack off on each one. So you didn't hit, you didn't hit the da, you hit the uh, and then the next one. And we did like, I don't know how many, 12 or 12 tracks of that you know, delaying the next one by a beat and then the next one. And so it's just a continuous loop. And it was like, and I think he said, well, that's what they use at the end of uh, one of the Beatle tracks. So, so we were privy to that, you know, working with the best guy on earth in some of those tricks. And uh, later when we did uh, uh, all the Sergeant Pepper shows, which I went to George's house out in the country and he cooked lunch for, for us, and uh, I got his blessing and the, and the charts for Sergeant Pepper to do that. Oh, he gave you the original charts? We, yeah, yeah. You guys did a big performance of Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, we did about 90, show, 90 shows. And uh, so I got his blessing for that. And, you know, we just got along well. It's like, and here I am, you know, I always think of myself, I'm Rick from Rockford, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's like, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anyways. I said, if you can make it in Rockford, you can make it anyways. You know? <laughs> so, the, so then when he, then when he passed away, I got an email from, from him and his family or whatever. It's like, we'd like invite to his memorial service. So I went, flew to England and went to this thing. And uh, I guess said family side on the back of my invitation. And so I sat there, I'm like, Right up front, behind me, it's Elvis Costello. Here's Genesis back there. Here's Pink Floyd. All these, you know, all these famous people, and they're way, way behind me in this place. 
And, uh, and as we file out to leave, I go and talk to Yoko, Sean, and, and Julian, because they were right ahead of me. And we talk for about a second, and then all of a sudden, somebody comes up to me. Hello, Rick. I said, hello, Paul. Paul came over, you know, Paul, the guitar he plays, I got for him, too. Not, oh, is that not, right? Not, not that far, but yeah. Yeah, that's the left-handed Les Paul that he plays. So I, I, I had one, and it's like, what am I doing with this thing? It's like, it's, I, it's a piece of art, but I have no, I can't play it. So I said, McCartney should have it, you know. And then I said that in a guitar magazine. And a few months later, then uh, he ended up getting it. Wow. Yeah. But later that year, after you recorded the album with George Martin, you worked on Double Fantasy with John Yeah. Lennon. What was that like? Oh, it's terrific. You know, it's like I treated it like uh, guy to guy. I did, you know, musician to musician. You know, he's one of my favorites. You know, what can you say? Well, see, I was asked by Jack to do it, to rock up this stuff that uh, John was doing. If you listen to the, the original Double Fantasy, it's like, it sounds like a lounge band to me. It's too produced. So Earl Slick learned my, my riffs and did them, but, you know, it's like, it's not, you know, I, I, I like to do this. Here I'm You know, it's like the way it is on the record is, you know, it's like it's, mm-hmm. my version was heavier. And, I, and then I came up with the, I came up with the riff. So when I was doing it, here's Bunny and Jack in the, in the booth when I was playing the guitar. After we had done the initial track, John says, God, I wish I would have had Rick on cold turkey clapped and choked up or clapped and froze you could only play the one riff wow that's a high compliment so how was how were they to work with how were john and yoko they were great they were great you know it's like they were they were terrific and the musician was like it's it's just cool and he was a great rhythm player too and uh, i'm a good rhythm player and it's like together it just kind of worked out and it's like uh, we, we enjoyed each other's company and i'd hope to Take him out guitar shopping after after the sessions. Not that day, but you know, I gave him one of my guitars because I said we're going to Japan the next day and uh, after the session, and uh, I'll get it back later. And I got it back three years after he was murdered. Yeah, oh, that's very sad. Yeah. So into the eighties with with Cheap Trick, and I still can't quite believe this, but you guys had this run of great hits and great albums. But then your record label decided that you had to like bring in professional writers. Yeah, that that beat up my ego pretty pretty much. It was like, I, you know, we weren't gonna we weren't somebody else, and you know, we don't try to make us into somebody else. And uh, we didn't have a, a label or a producer or a management that stuck up for us. You know, I, you know, we we we've always done other people's material. Like we did the first album, did Terry Reed song, and we did. Uh, Roy Woods songs, you know, Beatles. We you did Beatles stuff too, you know. But that was our own picking, you know. It's like, and here we got now we're doing something that's not written by us. So it's like, uh, I, it just didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't. But there you go. Did you have to co-write with them, or these oh, were songs I, that were I, given I, I to co-wrote you? some songs. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to that, but this was already signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. 
before we had the flame when that came out, we did they uh, we did a record with Todd Rundgren, "Next Position Please," and on that they had us doing a Motors song, "Dance on the Night Away," bop bop. Oh Jesus! So, are you the kind of guy that just walks around with your iPhone, and if you get an idea, you just record it? So you've got yeah. these little snatches of ideas. I got t- I got tons of tons of bad ideas. But uh, but I've, I've always kind of done that. I mean, I've written stuff down. It's like my, my one thing is like in the middle of the night, you wake up and you write something. Oh, man, this, this is something here. And then you wake up and it's chocolate milk. You know, what are they, huh? You know, it's like, how did that turn in? Why was that important enough to write it down? So there's there's usually something there. So, I mean, I've got tons of that kind of stuff. From my, my wife says, the F word, finish. You know, finish it. We were writing songs. It's like, uh, like a producer would come say something to me, like, "Well, what's the third verse like?" I said, "Well, do you like the first one before I, you know, spend the time to write the third one?" <laughs> you know, I, I it, you know, that goes into the arranging and all that stuff. Like in Surrender, starts off in B flat, and then the first verse and second verse, they're in B. Third verse is in C. It mo- modulates up. That's an arrangement, you know. It's not really so much the song. You love doing those kind of modulations in songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. You know, it's better than going na 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 hey hey. Yeah, a lot of those songs are good songs turn into junk when you have too much na na hey hey. All right, it's been great talking to you. Well, cool. Great, great album. I hope everybody listens. It's just a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to Rick Nielsen for running through some of the highlights of his career with us. To hear In Another World and our favorite Cheap Trick tracks, head to BrokenRecordPodcast.com, where we also have a playlist of some of our favorite power pop songs. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash BrokenRecordPodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at BrokenRecord. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. Our theme music by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards 
from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.